Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, here in the CSIS studio without Jeff Mankov because Jeff is on travel. For this episode, I talked to Anton Lavrov. Anton is an independent defense analyst uh, who is affiliated with the Moscow-based Center for Analysis of Strategies and Technologies, CAST, uh, some of whose other uh, staff has, uh, has joined us here in Russian Roulette in the past. Uh, he has also, very importantly, been a visiting fellow with us here in the Russia and Eurasia program for the last few months. Anton is uh, probably one of the top specialists you're going to find on Russia's war in Georgia. He's also worked uh, a lot on the Russian and Ukrainian militaries and how they have developed and uh, defense, aviation, and space industries in these countries. And he's been looking a lot and very deeply at local conflicts in uh, the post-Soviet space and now at Russian military operations abroad, including in Syria. Uh, He has written extensively on all of these topics, and his work is uh, cited by press outlets all around the world. So it's really been fun having Anton here at the Russian Eurasia program, and uh, I was pleased that he agreed to sit down uh, here in the studio to talk a little bit more about Russia and Syria, Russian military reform, and where the Russian armed forces are going. So, Anton, uh, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thank you. Um, so, Anton, I uh, first came across your work and started reading it um, when you were writing about the Georgia War in 2008. And I'm wondering uh, what got you started looking at these topics and writing about them? Uh-huh. In time of Georgia War, I was a hobbyist researcher of Russian armed forces. And I met this war in the Abkhazia near the border with Georgia. And it, of course, was a very big event. I can, I was able to see troops movement, techniques movement, equipment. And I was uh, on location. So I have uh, all the time to study this topic. And it was the first war, first Russian war, in the time of social media, uh, with a lot of um, video, a lot of photo and a lot of uh, first-hand uh, information. And has that continued to be um, a major source of data for you, is following social media accounts and... Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, blogs? it's my principal source. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use only with uh, good confirmed sources, uh, with uh, video, with uh, pictures, and with, um, with satellite uh, photos. And so, do you think other researchers make adequate use of these um, of these resources? I mean, it's it's something that's I think difficult for a lot of people to shift from uh, the kind of uh, more traditional research where you go out, you talk to people, you ask the questions, um, to getting information that people voluntarily provide, but maybe not with the intention of it being used that way. <laughs> Yes, it's a, it's a crucial. And there's a very lot of information in social media in, um, by, captured by simple peoples, uh, with their smartphones and something. It's a very rich source of, of information. If you only um, orient on traditional sources of information, papers or some research, of course, you must go online 
and uh, seek and uh, choose your sources to collect resources. So um, you have written about the war in Georgia. You've written about uh, what's been going on in Ukraine. You've been working here at CSIS on the conflict in Syria and how uh, that compares, what that shows about Russian military evolution since Georgia. Uh, what do you think isn't getting enough attention? What do you think we should be studying, uh, we as uh, specialists in uh, security studies that we're not? Uh, personally, I think uh, Russian changes in Russian command and control systems are still not uh, getting enough attention from uh, Western specialists. And it's it's very complicated, it's, it's, um, mm-hmm. uh, but it's very important. So what's changing in Russian command and control systems? Uh, from Georgia times, Russian command and control systems was uh, rebuilt from the ground up. There's uh, much more automation, much more uh, joint uh, inf- joint information systems. Um, there's a new national defense center that collect, process information and uh, take uh, decisions. Uh, there's uh, new tactical automated systems to provide uh, Russian troops better ability to communicate between different uh, forces branches and to quickly uh, react on new challenges on battlefield. And how how does it all work? Is it effective? Are there problems? And well, let's answer that, and then I'll go on to my next question. <laughs> uh, as uh, NATO forces uh, know and American forces know from their own experience. It's of course it's a most difficult problem in the current military. These automated systems is uh, very hard to get to work proper properly. And Russia doing first steps in this direction only. Uh, first year of development after Georgia was pretty um, disastrous, mm-hmm. and now we have uh, some improvement uh, only from 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And that, that's when you start seeing real improvements? I think it's uh, Ukraine and, most important, uh, Syria. Of mm-hmm. course. That's where you see the yeah, evidence? Yeah, where, where, where it was uh, first tested. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's, this conflict is uh, two years long and uh, three, almost three years long now, and it gave enough time to test all these new capabilities. So you see this uh, by following social media accounts. How, how do you how do you evaluate command and control by following social media accounts? No, of, of course uh, it's not the only source. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, uh, we must um, rely on official information sources. They are very tight controlled in Russia, but um, Ministry of Defense uh, have print a lot of sources in Russian language, mm-hmm. not in English maybe, but in Russian it's uh, pretty much. And uh, we have um, some media, professional media Russian, about military complex, military industrial complex, and so on. What do you think, other than command and control, what are some of the other really interesting 
innovations and points of progress that we've seen in Syria. You gave a talk on this uh, topic at CSI, so we'll have links to your presentation in the show notes. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to talk about that didn't make it into the presentation. Uh, I want to say about new capability of special operation mm-hmm. forces. Um, I don't need. I, I think it's not no need for explain to United States for what uh, purpose you need a special operation forces. You have it yourself. Uh, but for Russia, it's uh, a new special forces. Fully professional, highly trained, um, highly motivated, truly elite forces. Not an old army spetsnaz uh, consisted mostly from conscripts. It's really, really professional soldiers who can be sent um, openly or covertly to some foreign countries and who train to do interaction with uh, local forces, local proxies, and uh, to to wage asymmetric warfare and new types of warfare. That's that's quite a lot. Um, do you buy that they can do all of these things and do them all effectively? Yeah. Yes, I think uh, it, they will effective. Uh, we see a lot of interaction between uh, Russian forces and uh, local uh, Syrian forces, mm-hmm. and we don't see and we don't have uh, boots on the ground. We have only uh, some. Uh, few um, special operational teams mm-hmm. and not many people. And they uh, work, uh, they provide targeted information for the aviation, for Navy. They uh, do liquidation of um, chief of terrorists and uh, they do some training. And, and do this uh, with minimum losses. How do you expect the Russian armed forces to integrate these new capabilities into future conflicts? Special operation forces needed not only in conflicts, it's major conflicts. Uh, United States have presence of special operation forces in dozens of countries as of today. So Russia's planning to do the same thing? Probably. In all regions of interest, maybe not far from the borders, but in the KB uh, organization. So, do it. So, at some level, these this isn't war fighting. This is intelligence with intelligence. Up, you know, this is uh, this intelligence gathering. It's training for mm-hmm. for uh, friendly forces and so. On. And the tra- uh, the training mission is going to fall entirely on special operations forces, or is there? I mean, you know, for instance, the United States uses all sorts of forces in training missions. Special operations forces do some of it, but it's uh, it's um, it's very specific. Yeah, it's uh, Russian specific. We don't have um, much uh, special special training forces able to train uh, foreign forces. Um, Simple motor rifle brigade uh, do not have this ability. Only uh, special operation forces now uh, have dedicated uh, ability to train, and it's their um, purpose. What does that mean? Um, what what is it that they're capable of doing that others aren't capable of doing? That's uh, that's a training uh, portfolio. 
they they train for tactics of um, small scale units. They train for light infantry weapon and special infantry weapon like anti-tank guided missiles, uh, anti-aircraft missiles, and uh, they can uh, work as um, instructors for the local instructors who will provide training for a big amount of um, foreign troops later. Yeah, so so is there a train-the-trainer component? In Western uh, models of this, a lot of this is about training local forces to then sustain the training themselves. Uh, yeah, yes, of course, it's one of their tasks. You, this uh, limited number of uh, special operation forces, you cannot train uh, entire contingents of uh, foreign troops. Of course, we will first uh, train the trainers. So where do you expect Russian soft forces to be training local forces uh, in the future? Do you have specific uh, locations where you expect to see them? I can't say about this. Uh, it's, uh, they, will, they will go to where they, it will be needed. Okay. Another kind of interesting question um, that the Syria operation raises. One of the things you discussed in your presentation, uh, something that comes up a lot, is that Russia both uh, it's it builds a force that's whose primary mission is defense of the homeland. It also, despite its presence in Syria, has very limited force projection capability at a distance from its borders. On the other hand, Russia's in Syria. Uh, do you expect um, do you expect the Russian armed forces, whether or not they they themselves expect this, to do more expeditionary operations? Uh, for Russian military, perspectives of next conflict was always in Central Asia, the Republic. Uh, there is uh, Afghanistan nearby with uh, Talib, uh, Taliban, with uh, ISIS presence, and uh, other terrorist uh, groups. Uh, so we can uh, we can see Syria as a model for uh, future military deployment in this republic. It can be Kyrgyzstan, it can be Tajikistan, or somewhere else uh, where it will be needed to help local uh, government uh, fight terrorism. So the um, the war in Georgia spurred a lot of reforms for Russia, uh, which we've seen the effects of in Syria. We also hear uh, sometimes that there's been pushback against some of these reforms, and some of the things that have been tried have been reversed. A lot of the effort to make Russian forces, at least in principle, more agile, uh, such as moving to uh, brigade structures, that's some of that's been rolled back. Um, people are nervous that uh, the reforms have resulted in much less reserve capacity. What, what do you think? Do you think there were um, real mistakes made in the reforms? Do you think some of the pushback is just uh, tradition reasserting itself? Yes, I think it's mostly a tradition, a traditional history, or um, pushback from the reforms. 
after the change of defense ministry. Current new divisions are no more, not less agile divisions and region regiments not less agile than uh, old brigades, and but they are not so numerically superior. Mm-hmm. Do you lose any? Uh, you say they're they're still about as agile, but you don't have as much organic um, components at, at that smaller level in the division structure as you do in the brigade structure. Do you lose something by going back to the division structure? Uh, we lose something if uh, we need to split the forces. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, yeah, if uh, we uh, think about large big war, uh, big conflict with a long front line. Uh, divisions will be, will work just fine, but uh, for wars that might be slightly more likely than that, uh, does Russia need more agility? More agility is uh, always good, of course. But uh, current divisions, it's not um, pre-reform, um, bare-bone constructs without peoples, without mm-hmm. um, means for transportation. Uh, current divisions must be as uh, almost as agile as a uh, former brigade. So there, but there's a bit of a dichotomy, right? That on the one hand, you've got this rollback to bigger, heavier organizations. On They're the not other... so heavier because numbers are the same. Okay, but bigger. Uh bigger structures. Um, But you also have the development of special operation forces, which are the definition of agility, right? The whole point is that you can move them quickly, they can do things effectively and get out. Um, Do you think the next set of reforms is going to be more in the direction of small or more in the direction of big? Where Where do you see the trend line going? I don't think we see big structure reform in the near future. Mm-hmm. Current uh, new reforms will be about organization and uh, about uh, weapons. More, more uh, better organization, better communication, and more uh, precision and smart weapons. So more precision, smart weapons, do you think Russia is going to become more concerned about civilian casualties and limiting... Uh, Collateral damage, uh, if it has the capacity to do that without um, without a great cost? I think first factor is effectiveness. Um, smart weapons uh, do the job better than dark weapons. And civilian... It depends on the job. Sometimes you may want collateral damage. Maybe. But, uh, but civilian uh, casualties and collateral damage is, is a factor too. And in uh, Syria, Russia gained a lesson that um, it's uh, today you just cannot bomb uh, anything you want. You must uh, have some lines. Do you think Russia is taking that lesson? I don't know that Russia feels that it's suffered particularly for fighting in Syria the way it has. I think Russia genuinely tries to do as, as uh, less harm there. Uh, as possible, but Russia, but, but with uh, dump weapon, 
you don't have much options for right. environmental cause. Mm-hmm. But where Russia has used the smarter weapons, uh, it hasn't been in situations where, it, I mean, if anything, it's always looked like the smart weapons were used just to show that it could use them. It, it, I've seen no evidence that Russia was particularly interested in using more precise weapons in circumstances where you could use a less precise weapon and you'd have a lot of collateral damage. It could have done some of that, but it didn't really. Uh, Russia still has a very limited arsenal of um, precision weapons and don't have, almost don't have light precision weapons. Most uh, Russian new smart weapons are pretty big uh, missiles and bombs, uh, 500 kilograms, uh, 1,500 kilograms. And even if you use precision weapon of such caliber against uh, town targets, it will be a very uh, serious collateral damage, even with precision weapon. What uh, do you think people don't understand? What do you think people get wrong in studying Russia's armed forces and how they've evolved over the last decade? What do you think are the mistakes that are made both by Western and Russian analysts? Interesting questions. Thank you. Last few years, it's very hard to external um, experts to understand uh, change in the Russian military. Um, reforms was um, so quick. Uh, they have uh, robo- uh, periodically rollbacks and uh, new equipment for Russian forces um, procured in so big amounts and uh, so fast. There's uh, very hard to track, even for foreign and Russian experts uh, alike. There's less and less um, leaks, uh, less. Um, Information went from uh, Ministry of Defense. So it uh, makes things uh, very hard for foreigners and for Russian experts. What do you think um, observers uh, of the Russian armed forces can learn from watching Russian exercises, military exercises? How indicative are they of plans, intentions, capabilities? All, um, all exercises now are using uh, new capabilities uh, that were discussed in my presentation. Uh, all major exercises are combined arms mm-hmm. uh, with uh, use of modern communications, with use of modern weapons, with smart uh, shells for artillery, with uh, drones, with UAVs, and with um, in coordination between different branches. Uh, and uh, now exercises became even more realistic with uh, more true side exercises with um, some competition in, in exercises. It's more like in the Western. It's mm-hmm. a big, a big step from all Soviet uh, school of exercise. Do you think Western experts exaggerate the capability of Russian weapon systems? You've been in the States for a few months. You've... Uh and watching how people talk about these questions? I think people's exaggerate um, capabilities in Russian military in general. And, of course, uh, they misinterpret uh, intentions. Mm-hmm. If we, if we uh, look at uh, military reform and Russian military reforms, 
there we see that uh, they are mostly um, targeted on defense. Of course, we, we have uh, some offensive capabilities, like uh, any competent military, but um, I think we don't have uh, intentions for go harbor rock. Right. I think uh, many people in the West are concerned about your intentions to go near abroad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand the um, uh, state of mind of Baltic peoples. We have uh, same fears about our big uh, neighbor, China. The, um, for Russia, China is almost uh, looks almost like frightening, like uh, for Baltic peoples, uh, big Russia. But Russia doesn't formally plan against China. It doesn't talk about China as a threat. Russia. And, and I, I think. Uh, uh, Russia doesn't plan against Belgium. No, 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 but I'm just saying if, but the Baltics are planning defense against Russia. So if, so your your analogy no, no. is... Uh, we, we definitely um, have some contingency plans uh, against China and military too. Uh, most of our armies, new armies, are in uh, eastern military district on the border with China. We have entire Four armies and um, one, two armies on the, again uh, on border with uh, NATO uh, near Baltic and Norway. So, do the forces in the east get as much resourcing and as much attention and as much support? Uh, they have less uh, support because um, relations with China now are very good. Uh, so, it's not a priority. And uh, relation with NATO countries and Europe is, uh, last years went uh, to almost a new Cold War. And of course, um, forces near border is NATO receive more resources. Anton, thank you so much for joining us. Nice. This was a great conversation. Thank you. That's it for our show today. We've got links to Anton's bio and his um, his talk here at CSIS. We'll add a link to his CSIS report as soon as it is published. So depending on when you are listening to this podcast, maybe it's there already, maybe it's not. Um, if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. And maybe leave us a rating uh, and a review as well. If you're not an iTunes user, check out the podcast and subscribe via Google Play or SoundCloud. And tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell others who are interested in Russian, Ukrainian, Kazakh, Georgian, Azeri, Armenian, all the rest of it, strategy, doctrine, culture, food, all those good things, because we talk about all of it, and uh, we like uh, we like it for you to listen in. As you're listening in, and things occur to you that you want to know more about, uh, write them down and send them in to our mailbag. That's rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. We look forward to hearing from you and answering more questions. You can follow the program on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me. I'm at Olya Oliker. You can follow Jeff. He's at Dr. J. Mankoff. Finally, 
Big thanks to everybody who puts in the time and effort to make this podcast happen every other week. That is first and foremost, our research assistant and program coordinator and podcast producer, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Claire Hafner, and of course, the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. <laughs>